end of October, it began to get extremely cold in Arkansas and, and uh, the camps were not all ready yet. So we didn't have any heat in our barracks. And my father, I'm, I'm sure is because of the trauma as well as a cold, he caught pneumonia. And three weeks after he arrived, he died in a makeshift hospital. And that left my mother who was 43 with uh, seven children with an unknown future in a concentration camp. And that really uh, worried her. She didn't know what to do. Hi, my name is Sarah Veers, and on Wednesday, November 22nd, I drove up to Fresno, California to interview a couple who lived through the Japanese internment camps, or as they call it, the concentration camps. I heard about Reverend Sad Masada and his wife, Marion Masada, because they have been traveling around the country for years sharing this story. This year is the 75th anniversary of the signing of Executive Order 9066, which is what forced thousands of Japanese Americans to abandon their homes during World War II to move into the camps. I asked them what they remembered about that day that they were taken from their homes. Here's what they said. I'll never forget May 16 because I was the West Coast Relays at Fresno State. And my favorite star was Warmerdam, who held the world record in pole vaulting. And I was hoping he would break his record that day, but I never found out because the army truck came into the front yard and all nine of us piled in and we were taken to Fresno Fairgrounds, which suddenly had been turned into a prison uh, with guard towers and soldiers with guns pointed at us and uh, curfew every night and MPs knocking on our door to uh, make sure, you know, head count, make sure we were all in our barracks. And uh, throughout the night, the, uh, the uh, um, searchlights scanned the 250 barracks that housed over 5,000 of us, mostly from the Central Valley. And uh, so it was, it was uh, we knew that we were locked up. But our culture taught us to uh, just stuff it and, and there's nothing you could do about it, so just do the best you can. Well, I, the only thing I remember is um, all of a sudden I was being invited to my girlfriend's house for overnight, I mean dinner and and staying overnight at her house. And and we you know, popped popcorn late at night and I had a wonderful time. And the next day we went into the camps. And uh, that that's what I remember about going into the camp. Other than that, my mother didn't tell us anything. And uh, so... What was your friend's name? Dolly Jane Bradley, a blue-eyed blonde. <laughs> she and I were just, you know, close friends. And uh, even her parents uh, uh, saved some property of Japanese people, she told me, when I met her later on in life. I met her again after 75 years in uh, North Carolina. We went to see her. When I was in the camp, uh, she did come to visit me one day, but she was on the outside and I was on the inside. There was a, there was a fence, a, a fence uh, separating us and, and I guess they never came to see me again after that. It was too hard on us kids.
because we didn't know why we were there and there was no explanation. Both being natives of the Central Valley, Saab was just 12 years old when his family was sent to a camp in Arkansas for three years after being temporarily relocated to the Fresno Fairgrounds. Marion was nine years old when the Vans arrived to take her family away to Arizona, where she stayed for three and a half years. Some stayed four years. The last camp was closed in 46. But we left as soon as we were permitted to leave because we had a home and a farm to, to come back to because the uh, Sorensen brothers and the Nielsens, they kept our house and our farm for us. But 75% of all the lucrative farms were lost and never recovered because, you know, they had only two weeks or four weeks to get rid of everything they owned before they were incarcerated. Our culture taught us taught us not to focus on negative things. That was the, one of the important traits. It's called kodomo no tame, which means for the sake of the children. You know, don't uh, dwell on negative things, grumbling, complaining. And so uh, our, the adults and the parents, uh, they just kept us real busy and uh, try to enjoy life as normal as possible in a bad situation. And so uh, that was all any negative feelings. We weren't allowed to even, you know, talk about it because mm -hmm. we were told not to dwell on that. Yeah. Um, I, when I speak to students, I use the metaphor of uh, incest to try to convey the trauma we felt. Uh, we were like uh, innocent children. We loved our country. We were like 200% Americans, and our parents who were denied citizenship for some 30, 40 years, they loved their adopted country, and they brought us all up to be like 200% citizens, Americans. And so we were proud to be Americans. But then suddenly, our country was violating us, and uh, the humiliation and the shame and the guilt that were put upon us, uh, we couldn't do anything because uh, we had no voice, no power, nobody to advocate for us, so uh, we just buried it, you know, we pressed it. And so most of my generation, they buried it so deep that they can't even get in touch with that today. And it was all based on a lie, it had nothing to do with evidence. Going into this interview, I knew I would hear a lot about how the Japanese Americans lost nearly all their property and the trauma that they faced being imprisoned. But nothing could have prepared me for what Marion told me happened to her during the camps. I was about 10, 10, uh, I'm not sure how old I was about, between 10 and 11. My sister and I were invited to spend overnight down her girlfriend's house. And in the night, her father molested me, not my sister, not his own daughter, you know, same age, but he molested me. Cause I, I was sleep, well, you know, in, 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 in the uh, barrack room, there's only room for beds. So there we were in this big bed 
and I was sleeping here and the friend was sleeping in the middle and my other sister was on the other side. And then there's a bed here and the mother slept here and the father slept here. But he reached over and, you know, stuff, and molested me. And I was so traumatized, I couldn't even scream. Uh, and, and I was, I, I, I had no language to talk about it, let alone what happened to me. I don't know what was happening. And so, um, I, I, for years and years, I never talked about it to anybody. You don't talk about things like this to anybody. That's, that's how difficult it is. And so, um. I, I never even told my mother before she passed away. So it's one of those things that that uh, traumatized my whole life. Marin went on to tell me that she wasn't able to speak about what happened to her for several years, but it wasn't until she began opening up at the conferences that they were invited to speak at that she was finally able to begin coping. I later asked Sab if he felt like the camps could ever reopen. Here's what he said. Last year, during the election, I was hearing echoes of 1942. And what I heard back in 42 was being repeated again with uh, racism and faithism, exploding uh, terrorism, the fear of terrorism to uh, target or profile the Muslims and immigrants and others. And uh, so when people used to ask me, do you think it'll have happened again? I used to say, you know, I don't think it'll happen again, but but I was hearing these things like even the candidate Trump and a mayor in Roanoke, Virginia, they were saying, well, uh, we, we rounded up the Japanese in 1942, so we could do that again, you know, with Muslims and so on and so forth. Well, they're talking about one of the worst violations of the Constitution in 42, and they don't even know that. Our citizenship didn't mean anything, and the Constitution was reduced to a scrap of paper. And so uh, we, we survived. Yeah. Um, I wanted to share a story um, of our uh, friend, Chaplain George Archie. He was one of the four chaplains of the segregated all Japanese American fighting unit during World War II. And he said, uh, when rumors were going around that we would all be rounded up and put into concentration camp, I was telling everyone that that would not happen. This is America, America doesn't do things like that. Not only that, I was telling everyone that won't happen because we're Americans. And then he said, when the gates closed behind me at the Tampred Detention Center, my faith in America died, my faith in God died, and I died. When he said that, it really resonated deep within me because we weren't allowed to express it like that. You know, we just asked to bury it and just move ahead. But, um, but to me, uh, that was a kind of trauma and pain we went through. And, uh, and we need to get in, I need to get in touch with that more and more 
as well as my, you know, others who went through the camp experience, which uh, they're not willing to do so, no, most of them. But unless we do that, we're not set free to stand up for justice and for the rights of other people who are experiencing injustice like the Muslims and the uh, immigrants and the, uh, the, the DACA students. But, but uh, I'm glad that today's, you know, people are demonstrating, people are not keeping quiet. In 42, that wasn't the way we, we uh, behaved. Nobody demonstrated, nobody spoke up. Mm -hmm. But today I'm glad that people do speak up. And so that's what we need to be doing and not depend on government leaders to, you know, make the decisions for us because they, they, they may not be making the right decisions. So we need to be more vocal and speak up.